going to your butt. <laughs> oh, hello. Welcome to episode 113 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. As always, I'm joined by Mary, a woman who is hoping her birthday this week is celebrated by watching Oliver Otis Howard run full speed out of a cake. I am what? merely a beaten birthday pinata named Darren. <laughs> Happy birthday, Mary. Happy birthday to you. Thank you. More than a beaten birthday Uncle pinata. Mary says happy birthday as well. <laughs> a beaten birthday pinata. That's a new one. Oh, well, you know, it's a, it's a tough, tough day. It's called a tough measure. So what's happened? What's going on? We're recording again. Oh, yeah. It's been a couple of weeks. Our last episode was the New York City da- draft riots, which we released uh, two weeks ago. And so now we were back at it again. Um, we are in the Eastern Theater, and we are going to be talking about a part of the Siege of Petersburg. We are going to talk about that again. We talked a little bit about it at the beginning. We're going to kind of go back into it today. But since I am a gracious host, I will ask you primarily first, what on earth are you drinking tonight on this Friday night? Well, I am drinking um, Be Smooth by um, Wormtown Brewing, which is in Worcester, Mass. And I'm drinking it out of um, just a generic Civil War mug because I really don't have anything to do with the Battle of the Crater when it comes to mugs. So I just went with that. Just generic Civil War mug. Okay. Well, thanks for asking. Since you didn't ask, I'll tell you what I'm drinking. I am drinking similarly from Wormtown Brewery in Worcester. It's called Be Fearless. Uh, and I'm drinking it out of my USCT mug right here, mm, which is going to be appropriate for this episode. But you can probably say they were fearless as well. Well, so Ledley certainly wasn't feeling anything. That, that, that would be true. We'll definitely <laughs> talk about him. But speaking of, speaking of this, you know, all the Civil War battles that we've studied – you know, one of the most fascinating is the one that took place July 30th, 1864, near Petersburg, Virginia, which, of course, is the Battle of the Crater. Now, it's one of the, it's a fascinating study, uh, and a lot of people study because just how brazen it was. Mm-hmm. You know, just think about it, digging a tunnel under the Confederate line and then filling it up with black powder and blowing it up. It's a stuff out of a fiction novel yeah, or a cartoon and it's, or a roadrunner or something. You know, the tunnel itself, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, is a feat of engineering. You know, that they did it, you know, these Pennsylvania miners uh, dug this tunnel. But, you know, there's a lot going on with this battle that is not just the battle. It's also a, you know, it really is reflective of how the situation is in 1864 with the brutality of war, as well as with the fact that, uh, you know, African-Americans are now fighting. And that is a part of this battle, too, and a part of the story of it. And we touched on it, obviously, in the New York City draft riots. We touched on how, you know, there is this it's racially driven there is stuff that is racially driven in this battle as well that is part of the story of it too and that's just part of the night that's just part of the 1864 now draft riots were 1863 obviously but obviously it carries into 1864 because the you know the war is not over yet yeah we're going to talk about a lot of stuff as it goes on but you know just speaking to this mind the concept of digging a mine and blowing it up the blowing up the enemy it really isn't a new one you know, it's not even the first one no. recently in the Civil War. We talked about Vicksburg a million years ago. We talked about, you know, the third Louisiana Verdan there, the Battle of Vicksburg, you know, which was much, which was similar, but because it was not in the Eastern Theater, probably wasn't as popular. Yep. But but as you, to your point, as you take that deep dive into this one, this battle has a very dark and sinister side to it. And, and really is one, it's really one of those tragic and sad fights that it's out of the entire war, it's probably one of the most vicious. Um, mm-hmm. It really did nothing but cost thousands of lives. And at the end, you know, U.S. Grant is going to describe this as a stupendous failure. That's yep. what he's going to talk about in, in his memoirs. 
you know, we did a few episodes about the Overland campaign not too long ago. You know, we did Spotsylvania, we did we did um, we did Cole Harbor, but the, but this brutal uh, this brutal campaign of attrition that began in May of 1864 really, it's really again that it had that overpowering manpower used by the Union to help whittle away Robert E. Lee's numbers in the Army of Northern Virginia to really to end the war in the East. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to go into too, too deep detail about, you know, turn back time, what you always like to do, right? If I could but, turn back time. Yeah, see, that's what happens when I say that. But the, <laughs> this was the in the final stages of the Overland Campaign by June of 1864, you know, Grant had crossed that James River, and instead of attacking Richmond, he is going to go further south and attack Petersburg, which mm-hmm. is the supply hub of Richmond, which is about 25 miles south of the rebel capital. Yeah, now, and did you know the this, Union sees it as the back door, therefore it is... It is the Savannah. Oh, see, here we Richmond. go. Here we go. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but it's going to be known as the Richmond Petersburg Campaign, and eventually it's going to turn to the, the siege of Petersburg. But in June of '64, you know, following the Battle of Cold Harbor, here Grant's going to cross that James River, like we said, he's going to swing around Richmond to Petersburg, and he's going to hope that if he seizes the city, he takes the supply chain out, he specifically suffocates the city, conquers the railroads. Mm-hmm. That, you know, he's going to basically force the end of the war in the east. And remember, Petersburg is their main supply base at this point. It's a popular, you know, um, it's a big railroad network. Mm-hmm. It's got a population of around 18,000. Now, Grant knew if he controlled Petersburg, it's going to make it impossible to sustain Richmond. It's just not going to not yeah. going to happen. And we talk about Grant is changing philosophies of the Overland Campaign. And he's going to change his philosophy again here. Now, whereas during the Overland Campaign, Grant was specifically targeting Robert E. Lee and his army, and this time Grant's goal is going to turn into a is going to turn into a, a geographical one. Yeah, and he's going to his goal is to take Petersburg, either starve Lee out uh, and basically into submission, or lure him out into a fight is is what he's going to do. And what's going to happen is it's going to kick off a handful of offensives by Robert by uh, by U.S. Grant. Now, real quick, you know, the first one's going to be June 9th of 1864. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just going to set up how we're going yeah. with this, okay? This is involving Benjamin Butler, and he's going to attack the, uh, the Petersburg entrenchments. It's going to be known as that Dimmick line we talked yeah. about. And he's going to attack uh, basically in concert with the, with the, 20, with the 10th Corps uh, by General Quincy Gilmore. And since most of Lee's forces were in Richmond at this point, Petersburg was basically guarded by the, you know, the home guard. We're talking the young boys, the older men, those type of people. The problem with this early part was Gilmore, he waited too long. We see this all the time. He wanted to wait for cavalry support by the guy named August Kautz. Yeah. And before long, Lee's going to sniff this out, and he's going to re- reinforce that Dimmick line with infantry under Pierre Gustave Toutant Beauregard, and yes. that attack's going to fail. And that's, that's where that, right, he's going to go. Now, Butler is going to lose his shit at Gilmore about this. He's going to lose it, and Gilmore's going to be quickly reassigned by Grant, and he's going he's gonna to leave the dance floor. The second offensive comes about a week later, and this is on June 15th, and this time Butler is going to have William Baldy Smith with him, mm-hmm. and he's going to have 16,000 guys along with August Cuts uh, Calvary still, and they're going to try to hit that same Dimmock line again. Now, despite the city being vulnerable again to attack, for whatever reason, Baldy Smith is going to delay once again on the second day because he wants to wait until dawn. It's getting later in the day. Yeah. So he wants to wait till dawn this the next day. This seems to happen a lot in these campaigns. It does. So who comes bopping in 
But Winfield Scott Hancock yeah. in the second core, old Winnie boy, right? I can see must him bopping a, in on his a, horse too. He must have had an egg muffin on the way. He was there. Early I was going to say he probably stopped at the McDonald's. <laughs> but he, but he he gets there. He has no idea what the orders are. He has no clue. So he's going to f- defer to Baldy Smith's judgment. Okay, we're going to attack early in the dawn. And despite the fact that that Beauregard at this point's only got about fifteen thousand guys. And the Union has about forty to fifty thousand, so they got a huge numeral, you know, numerical advantage. June eighteenth, George Meade, that fun-loving guy, all smiles. <laughs> he's going to lose his. He's going to lose his mind no, again. Not Meade, because the rebel line's still not broken, and so he orders a full frontal attack um, on the rebel lines. Now, Beauregard's men are going to basically be able to push them back for the moment. We're not going to get into too, too many details. But the Union is going to take a bunch of losses here, including that first main heavy artillery, one of those green regiments who guarded the forts in Washington. Washington. They're going to lose 70% casualties, 632 out of 900 guys they're going to lose here. So in four days, okay, Meade is going to try to break that line and he's going to lose about 11,000 men. With the 1864 election looming and that rising body count and the rumors of Grant being, um, being a butcher, Meade is going to say to hell with this. He's going to pull out his Operation GTFO card, and he's going to fall back, and he's going to decide to dig in. But Grant has one more card to play, Mm -hmm. and this one is what what was known today as the Third Offensive, and this is the one we're going to talk about today. And this is going to result in the infamous Battle of the Crater on July 30th, 1864. So you have two false starts now, and now the armies are entrenched, and they're close. And this yeah. is going to, we're going to talk in the details how this whole thing breaks down. But sometimes you'll hear this known as the third offensive. And that's that the first two. That's, I just wanted to explain how yeah. we got no, there. No, it, it, it's good to set it up like that. Right, right. Okay. Um, so I was going to, one thing, the other thing to set up too is the, um, so just the situation that these guys are in now in these trenches. And we talked about this in our other episodes too, that this is the beginning of trench warfare that you see in World War One. I. I actually read a really good article about the Battle of the Crater. It was written in 1938. And the author really went back to World War One because even in 1938, it's really fresh in people's minds, right? The trench warfare. But so the trenches are four to six feet deep and the men would pass non-fighting hours in them, two hour shifts with a uh, nice job there, Quint. <laughs> I was going to say it was Robert Shaw's birthday yesterday. <laughs> oh, great. Spanish ladies. <laughs> God. Now who's singing? Anyway, so they would pass the non-fighting hours. Uh, they did two-hour shifts in these trenches, and then but there was also obstacles near the trenches. So like you have logs from which wooden spikes protruded. You had abatis, which were tree clusters, kind of like all wired together, and then you had sharp, sharpened logs embedded in the soil, and the sharp end would face the enemy. So they're they're heavily fortified as well. And the trenches, it varied how far apart they were, you know, some were just 100 yards between them. And then there was like, you know, you had the no man's land and others were 600 yards apart. Um, And the close trenches would be um, subjected to daily onslaughts from sharpshooters and snipers. So, you know, just like in World War One, you poke your head up over the top, you risked being shot by somebody. So it's it's still like, even though there's not any big battles going on, there's still kind of this like back and forth between the two sides. And that's the situation that these guys are in as we go into the Battle of the Crater. Oh, and not to mention the weather, which is always a factor in these Civil War battles. It has especially figured in to what we've been talking about with like Spotsylvania and Cold Harbor and all that. But the weather, the, the temperature um, on average is about 100 degrees 
this time of year um, during yeah, this 1864 summer is brutally it's, hot. It's a it's a full gold bond powder situation, gentlemen. At this weather oh, in this God. day, it's 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 a it's hundred degrees. It's humid. You know, the overall plan is going to remain the same. They basically you're going to break that rebel line, seize Petersburg, and, and Grant is going to basically formulate kind of a plan. Now, here's the thing: when you read this plan of the third offensive, is what happened in real time is kind of different than what Grant talks about. And there's, a, there's definitely a Monday morning quarterback situation with this. Well, we'll talk about this. But the prime, the prime attack in the third offense, it was known um, is at a place called Deep Bottom. Now, this is July 27th now, and it's north of the James River, but it fizzled. Now, Grant would later say that south of the James River was the actual primary attack, which is amazing because it's not really the case. Um, the one, the battle that's south of the James was kind of the B side with this, yeah, uh, or the secondary attack. But when you read the memoirs later, Grant says, "Well, actually, it wasn't." But it doesn't. It just doesn't jive. But it's, but people sometimes you'll hear about Deep Bottom being the secondary attack, yeah, and it just doesn't really hold water when you really study it. No, um, but that, but Grant says it. So that's what he's later on. He says that, but whatever. But after that failed second offensive. You know, both armies, to your point, they're entrenched. And Ambrose Burnside, the commander of the Ninth Corps, okay, we got old Burnside back yep. again. He needs a redemption badly after Frederick's He does, Kirk. and he almost gets almost. it. Almost. <laughs> he, he, he had his army set up at a place called Fort Morton, which is east of the Norfolk and Petersburg Railroad near a place called the Taylor House, also known as Spring Garden Plantation. And it's south of the James River. Now, this this Fort Morton's got 14 guns. It's, it's pretty entrenched. And... Burnside's going to have about 8,500 guys divided into four uh, divisions under James Ledley, Robert Potter, Orlando Wilcox, and Edward Ferrero. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the four, um, only Ferrero's division, uh, they were made up of two brigades under of USC, uh, USCT troops, United States Colored Troops. And they really hadn't seen the action in the first two offensive. As a matter of fact, they hadn't really seen any action no. at all. They, this was not the 54th Mass. These were green troops. They were relatively new. Now, facing them, in some cases, like you said, less than 200 yards away, yeah. there's going to be a mile-long Confederate line of Bushrod Johnson's division of Richard Anderson's Good corps. Old Bushrod. And they're going to run north to south. Um, it, it was Colonel J. Archibald Gracie's Alabama Brigade that's going to be in the north, and Stephen Elliott's South Carolinians right in the middle. And in, in, in the south is going to be J. Thomas Goods Virginians. And so it's going to be a pretty strong line. Now, Elliott's Brigade is in the middle, and that's going to be the strong point. And But they're going to – because of the undulations mm-hmm. and the way the land is, it's going to create a salient. And it's, you'll see this referred to as Elliott's salient. Sometimes you'll see it referred to as Pegram's salient. Yeah. And – Despite that, that was the strong point on the Confederate line. It was. Um, between the Union and Confederate lines, there was a large bluff near a creek called Poor Creek. The soldiers called it Pooh Creek. That's what they called it. And, but uh, but the, the terrain, for the most part, was really good ground because that bluff, that rise, whatever you want to call it, it really masked the Union troops on the mm-hmm. Confederate line. Even, even though they were really, really close, you really couldn't see. It created a natural launching platform if they wanted to attack. So in late June of 1864, while Grant's formulating this plan to attack north of the James at Deep Bottom, many of the Federals in Burnside's Corps are pretty much hanging out, you know, maybe doing some whittling, maybe, yeah. maybe a little twister. We don't know what they're doing. Twister. 
but they're they're entrenched in the look of a something to do yeah. just to kill the monotony of what's up, waiting for something to happen. Robert Potter's division, his second division, is going to have a regiment under a guy named Lieutenant Colonel Henry Pleasants of the 48th Mississippi. I mean, 48th Pennsylvania. I was going to say, like, oh. Yeah, he switched sides. 48th Pennsylvania. The 48th was a regiment from Schuylkill County. And if you know Pennsylvania, that's the county seat is in Pottsville. Pottsville, as you know, Mary, is the home of the Great Yingling, Yingling Brewery. Yeah. It's also the home of a DQ. So it's definitely a solid stop along the yeah. way from Massachusetts to Gettysburg is right there. Um, now, one day while sitting around, a soldier in the 48th Pennsylvania – He's probably one of these salt of the earth guys. Yeah. Now, in this in this group is about a hundred coal miners, and Schuylkill County is a big mining area. So a lot of the forty eight PA is are miners. Yeah. And just just you can just imagine how how, how they yeah. were. One of them is going to happen. It's just going to happen to say to Pleasance, we could blow that damn fort out of existence if we could run a mine shaft under it. Well, they took a look at the and, lay of the land and they realized, yeah. like, hey, this is similar to where we're from then that's where they got the idea that it would be ideal to drink a mine to dig a mine yeah. shaft pleasance is going to think about it and he's he's just going to kind of sit there at an idle soldier common sitting around board but then he starts thinking you know something it might be just yeah. crazy enough to actually work so pleasance takes the idea to burnside mm -hmm. and he says to burnside that goddamn fort is the only thing between us and petersburg that's what he says the fort being of course elliot salient yeah and then if so, Potter and Pleasance, they also explained to Burnside that the men are really excited about this. They say the men themselves have been talking about it for some days and are quite desirous, seemingly, of trying it. And, you know, at this time, like, there's not much going on. And they're kind of like, well, we need to give these guys something to do. And Pleasance, you know, he really talks it up. Like, he says that his men could dig at the rate from 25 to 50 feet per day including supports they would have like you know ventilation and all the stuff that you need when you have a mine so he's really talking it up and like obviously his guys know what mm -hmm. they're doing they are coal miners so mm -hmm. they're just it, this is something they've done before you know so what do you want he wants to take a 500 basically it says to be 500 just under 511 feet long but 500 feet long 20 to 25 feet deep running from the union line ending just below um elliot salient now, it, when it's done, it's filled up with black powder. Boom, it goes up. That's the whole thing. And beyond the salient was open ground, of which they thought was open ground anyway, which ran up to a high point that was called Wells Hill. Mm -hmm. Wells Hill was a height. Um, it was high enough that it commanded the town, the area. So the Union could get there and they could put artillery there. They could basically command Petersburg and force Lee's army to basically be split in two. Yeah. So it was a real strategic position if they could get to it. Burnside is going to immediately, he loves the idea. He thinks yeah. it's the greatest thing in the world. And he runs it up the flagpole to his boss, George Meade. And George Meade is, uh, he gives his best Larry David. Eh, yeah, that, he, that he's thing. kind of, he's um, like, like he, he's supportive of it, but kind of like, you know, like you said, like, eh, he said to him, I'm delighted to hear you can do anything against the enemy's lines and will furnish everything you want and earnest wishes for your success besides. I would have been over to see you today, but certain movements of the enemy on the left have kept me here. And those certain movements are going to play into this um, as we go along, which what Meade is referring to. But, you know, Meade tells him you can have sandbags, you can have all the stuff that you need. And of course, Burnside's probably like, okay, that's good. Because look what happened to Burnside at Fredericksburg. He has kind of like this 
you know, you mentioned having to get supplies from DC and he's kind of like, oh my God, yeah. not that debacle again. But Burnside is looking for, you know, he's looking for a redemption from what happened to him at Fredericksburg. And this plan, a lot like the Battle of Fredericksburg, looks really good on paper. Yeah. The thing about it is me, you know, you mentioned before, he was a little less enthusiastic. Oh yeah, he's sound. not, he, yeah, yeah. That, he, that's he that's was, taken from a letter he wrote, but yeah, he's still like, He's like, he, eh, it was, a, it, was like a, it was like a you do you thoughts yeah. and prayers sounds yeah. like fun. I'm busy. I got to go. The thing about it is Meade had absolutely zero faith in Burnside's military judgment comp- at all. So, you know, he's going to enlist the Meade's chief engineer, a guy named uh, Major James Dwayne. And he called the idea a claptrap and nonsense. And he felt it was his, his concern was he thought it was impossible to dig a mine that long without it being properly ventilated. And and so you mentioned hinting how it was before. Now Meade, you know, did kind of he was like, okay, fine. Yeah. But he does put the plan to Grant. And Grant says, well, I guess I'll do anything at this point, because you gotta know what else is going on. Jubal Early is running wild in the valley. He's about yeah. to go in towards Washington. Um, Maryland, you know, so all these things are going on. He just sent his sixth corps out, which he's about to to go deal with early. So he knows that he has to, he has, now he's losing men. He knows he has to break this line. So he says, you know what? Screw it. Go ahead and do it. And so on June 25th, the men of the 48th PA, they're going to strip down and adjust their underwear and their t-shirts. Okay. They take a picture for a calendar and then they start <laughs> taking a picture. Okay? For a oh my God. And, and they begin to dig this mine. And the thing is, is the, you know, the first thing they needed to, before they start though, just jumping ahead a little bit, the first thing they need to do is reconnoiter the area. Yeah. And they need to see, it'd be nice if we dig the mine in the right directions. They need to know pretty much how to do this. The problem was they're so close to the Confederate line, they really can't walk out there and take mm-hmm. a peek with a surveying glass because they're going to get shot. Colonel Pleasance, you know, he um, he knows that anybody who goes out there and, and is exposed is going to basically be shot at and killed. Yeah. As a matter of fact, one of his one of his staffers was shot in the head when they tried the first time. So to accomplish this, it's kind of funny how they did this. To accomplish this, Pleasance is going to have a couple of guys go <clears throat> go over to his right. Yeah. <clears throat> He's going to take a couple of keppies, stick them on a stick, poke them up, and the Rebs are going to shoot at him. Okay. Meanwhile, Pleasance is going to put a burlap sack, cut two eyes out of it, oh my God. <laughs> sneak up. And he's, he's, you know, he's basically going to, you know, he's going to look like dumb Donald from the old Fat Albert character, oh, right? <laughs> and he's going to sneak up with his glasses and he's going to basically be camouflaged with this thing. And by doing that, he's able to reconnoiter and see the, the direction to do. So it, it actually was pretty brilliant the way he did yeah. it. But, um, and so he did. So to help ease, I mentioned James Dwayne was concerned about the ventilation. What Pleasant's death what it did about halfway through the mine, they're going to dig a vertical shaft. And what they're going to do is they're going to actually light a fire inside of it. Yeah. And the fire is going to act like a chimney and push the air out. And they're going to have, they're going to connect it with with the shaft. They're going yeah, to it's basically really interesting how they do it. System. So it's actually pretty good the way they, it's pretty ingenious how they do this. But it's 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 in progress. It's going on as of the twenty fifth. They're going to get it done by July seventeenth. That's how fast they're going to do this. Yeah, they work and, continuously in three hour shifts, um, like so, around the clock and. The whole regiment is participating in this as well. And it's, and it's done right under the feet of yep. Elliot's guys. I mean, when they get towards the end. But Pleasant's work, though, is not completely without being noticed by the Confederates. 
um, Beauregard is his Confederates are going to realize pretty quickly that they're they're digging, they're doing something. Yeah. And so that open ground I mentioned between the salients and Wells Hill, they're going to start to put artillery. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, John Haskell, the Brown Branch Battery, as well as the Nelson Battery, they're going to put some guns out there. They're going to dig in trench works. They're going to basically make it so it's not this easy run if they get through. And so in Petersburg, even the city, there are rumors that they're digging. They think they're going to blow the whole city up. They said Petersburg was it was resting upon a slumbering volcano. That's the rumor. Yeah, what it, they were doing. It it was so you know like the Confederates at one point when they're getting close to being done, and when the Union's getting close to being done, they can hear them, but they don't know how to get to them. But the funny thing is, is as the Confederates are digging around, the Union guys can hear them digging, and there's some pretty you know it's really the engineering behind this is really cool. Like so, for instance, they had to figure out a way to get all the dirt away uh, so that the Confederates wouldn't suddenly notice huge piles of dirt, right? Um, so what they, one of the things they do is they take their hard tack boxes, so the empty hard tack boxes, and they um, modify them with iron from the pork barrels to carry yeah. away the soil to a location out of view of where the Confederate pickets are. And the other thing they do, too, is Pleasant's men also get authorized, authorization from Burnside to operate an abandoned sawmill, um, which is in the rear, to get timber. Rather, and, you know, the reason they do this, and I completely understand why Burnside does this, is because he doesn't want to wait on timber coming from Washington. Because he, rem- I think he's remembering, like, oh, shit, look at what happened with Fredericksburg. Well, so, as he was say around these parts, Pepperidge Farm remembers. Right? <laughs> exactly. So, but they, they get permission to operate this sawmill. And it allows them to have the timber to build the mine. But not only that, you know, these guys are working um, around the clock. Um, and uh-huh. they whatever materials they don't have, they somehow manage to come up with. Um, and like you said, like the project is criticized as it goes on. There's one guy, John G. Bernard. Um, he's an engineer at the AOP. And he questions it, um, what's going for on. And like, I guess him and Pleasance met up and there was some exchange. And Pleasance... Bernard starts asking him questions and Pleasance ends the conversation by saying, I'll see you in hell. And he gets up and leaves because he gets offended that this AOP and chief engineer is questioning him on his mining skills. Right. Um, And Burnside does visit the area while they're doing it. Um, He brings some state governors with him to like show him what's going on. But the other side to this is what happens to the 48th Pennsylvania. They kind of become like other regiments start to not like them. Because what does um, Burnside do? He rewards these guys that are working around the clock to dig this mine with extra whiskey rations uh-huh. taken from other regiments. And this starts to cause some friction because they start to see it as favoritism. Like, oh, what are those guys doing in the 48th PA that, you know, like you're taking away our whiskey rations, right? So there's stuff. So yeah. there is there is um, friction going on in the Union Army with this happening. Mm-hmm. Well. No, right, but whatever. But Burnside is, is plugging around along. He's doing really, yeah. really well. Uh, but like I said before, the Confederates aren't sitting idly by no. here. You know, Lee is going to re- reinforce that artillery we talked about with batteries about 500 yards south and 700 yards north of Elliott's salient in case they do get through. They don't know what's going on, but they think there's something going on. These batteries are going to basically create a killing field that covers that whole area between the salient and Wells Hill. This is all unbeknownst to Burnside. Now, while the mines, and this is you know classic government red tape, while ma- the mines being built, Burnside is going to request two things from the government. Mm-hmm. Okay, he's going to request twelve thousand pounds of black powder in special waterproof fuses. The government, of course, sends him eight thousand pounds of black powder, 
in non-water fruits. Uh, of course, because why not? He says, he says base, just basic stuff. So when the powder finally, so like, okay, fine. The powder does arrive. You mentioned the 48 PA, how they were. They had to carry these powder this down the mine. What they basically did was take it and put it into two 25-pound barrels. They tied them together with a piece of wood and put them over their shoulders oh my God. and carried them 500 feet in a dimly lit shaft with the roof about four feet high. So this thing about leaning over, yeah. carrying 50 pounds down at the end. When they finally got there towards the end, there were eight large vessels. Um, I don't know what you want to call them, but they were, they were like big, big eight buckets. They would pour the the, uh, the black powder in and set them up. And then what they would do is they would splice those fuses to create a hundred foot long fuse. So for the most part, the mine's ready. Yep. It's ready to go. It ready. So that's kind of how how it was pretty quickly. Now, again, according to Grant, he had planned to launch that deep bottom attack north of the river as a diversion and keep Lee's men north of the river and then use the mine attack as the primary goal. And as I said before, that's not the, really the way at the time it was set up, but that's how we talked about it later. On July 28th, Grant is going to send 25,000 infantry under uh, Winfield Scott Hancock, the mm-hmm. second corps. And, uh, and cavalry under Phil Sheridan north of the river to deep bottom, and which caused Lee to think this is going to be the real threat. Because yeah. it probably was. You don't send probably your best corps and your cavalry for a diversion, realistically. This is going to leave, for Lee now, just three divisions in front of Petersburg with only William Mahone's three brigades, 2,300 or so men, available to move if necessary. So what this meant for Burnside, He's got 16,000 guys on his team. He only has 4,400 Rebs under Bushrod Johnson mm. in his front. So I don't need any math skill experts. know it's about a four-to-one ratio. I'm you good at math. That I'm good at right. math. But the plan was once Leesman had gone north to help fight north of the of the James at Deep Bottom, the mine's going to be exploded. And at that point, Burnside's going to send that infantry around the crater across that open field right up to Wells Hill to seize it, hold it, and then move the artillery up there, and thus breaking the Confederate line and splitting Lee's army in two. Mm-hmm. And I said before, up to this point, Burnside, chef's kiss, he's killing it. Yep, he's, he's doing, doing everything, really he's well. everything right. And it was pretty flawless. Every Everything he pushed was coming up roses for the most part, as I mixed 48 metaphors there. But like I mentioned, three of the four divisions had seen action before recently. And the fourth, those black USCT troops under Edward Ferrero, um, they 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 hadn't been. So what does Burnside do? He's going to choose them to lead the attack. He's going to, in, in his mind, they're fresher. Yeah. Uh, the other guys have been fighting, you know, but a month or so. I'm going to send these guys. And this is where Burnside's plan falls off the trail here, right? Yeah. So the first issue we mentioned before is these black troops were green. And we've said before, as Kermit has once said, it's not easy being green. Yeah. We've talked about it many, many times. The brigades, these brigades are under Joshua Siegfried and Henry Goddard Thomas, and they had never really seen combat before. Again, this was, this was, this is, these guys were green. But the primary issue was political. Yeah. William Burnside, you know, he reported that his final step of the plan to Meade, the big boss here, and Meade noped it. He said, ain't going to do it. He doesn't want to send black troops in first because he felt that, for the most part, um, they they would 
whoever went in first was going to be hit pretty hard. Yeah. And they did not want the perception to be sent in the north that they were using the black troops as cannon fodder. And then the white guys were going to come in afterwards. So the Confederates at this time, too, we're going to talk more about this in a little while, had that standing no quarter to be given order. Yeah. Which for black soldiers, and if you if you were captured, you were marked for death. Mm-hmm. And this was all in the mind of George Meade right now. So Meade has said, he quotes, he says, it would be impolitic to send colored troops in first. So despite the fact that they were fresh um, and not banged up from previous uh, previous battles. And they'd also been training, too, for, right. for this. He's, he's going to tell Burnside, go back to the drawing board. And he's going to say, these aren't the droids you're looking for. Find someone else. Mm-hmm. Pick one of the other three we talked about. And, of course, Burnside's going to Burnside here. He, yep. This is when he's going to really screw up. Ever, all the good things he'd done up to that point, he's going to piss away. So we said before, he has three divisions now to choose from, two of which are going to be extremely competent and experienced generals in Robert Potter and Orlando Wilcox. The third guy was a guy named James Ledley. Mm-hmm. This is a man that, that General Grant, he wrote, he said, besides being otherwise inefficient, proved also to possess disqualification less common among soldiers. Yeah. Translation, this guy sucks. That's yeah. what he's basically saying. And he's so, only in where he is as a commander of the 1st Division because the original 1st Division commander got right. killed, I think it was at Spotsylvania. Yeah. He, he, so he, so that's the, and what, what's mind-numbing about this is instead of sitting back and weighing the resumes, deciding, okay, how am I going to do this? He literally puts it up to fate. And he, the most important battle of the Petersburg campaign at that point is going to be led by a general who is going to be decided completely by a luck of the draw. So it's fate. So what they would do is they literally picked straws. The shortest straw goes first. The shortest straw naturally was pulled by James Ledley. Of yeah. course it was. So he's going to be given the responsibility of formulating this attack. Now, real quick, James Ledley. He's born April 14th, 1832 in Utica, New York. He was not a West Pointer. He, um, he allegedly attended Union College. And the reason why I say allegedly, yeah. he said he did. Union College has no record of him ever yeah, going. It's not known. No, it's kind of like you, University of Toronto. What? No one knows, you know. But when the Civil War started, Ledley will be appointed major of the 19th New York mm-hmm. and eventually be named Colonel. Now, the 19th is going to be changed to the 3rd New York Heavy Artillery. He's going to be guarding forts for a while. He's going to end up later guarding the North Carolina. Um, uh, he's going to go to North Carolina, basically manning the defenses uh, on the Department of Carolina and Virginia. Now, when Grant's Overland campaign started in May of 1864, Ledley got a brigade, and if you just mentioned this before, in the Ninth Corps under Burnside of Thomas Stevenson, a good Massachusetts man, was shot in, when he was shot and killed yeah. in Spotsylvania. So Ledley was now, by now, Ledley's now put in charge of a division now. And he was a trained civil engineer, mm-hmm. had very little combat experience. He had the reputation of being a coward, a drunk, a Bills fan, mm-hmm. completely <laughs> incompetent. He had the he had the whole New, upstate New York thing going for him. <laughs> now, so he had less than 24 hours to plan this attack. And th- this is the guy that they picked, the worst guy in the, in the worst amount of time to do this. Yeah. And, and Grant, you know, Ledley had t- had two brigades, and we'll talk about these. William Bart with the twenty, the twenty first, twenty ninth, fifty sixth, and fifty seventh, and fifty ninth Massachusetts, as well as the hundredth Pennsylvania. 
The other was under the guise command of Elijah Marshall, 3rd Maryland, 14th, 179th New York, as well as the 2nd Pennsylvania Heavy Artillery. And Ledley knew, here's the thing, Ledley knew that Burnside wanted the men to rush past the crater mm-hmm. after it exploded and take the high ground and take their death. So they kind of knew what, what, roughly yeah. what they were going to do. For whatever reason, bad communication, who the hell knows, Ledley is going to tell those brigade commanders, Barlett and Marshall I talked about, that once you get to the crater, stop. Yeah. Just stop and just hang out there. So either he did he mis- didn't understand the orders or ignored the orders. Either way, it's a recipe for friggin' disaster yeah. right before it starts, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not like, I mean, like we said, it's the plan looks great on paper. They have trained the USCT troops for it but then you know Meade comes along and says we can't do this and it's it's mainly politics that he thinks it's going to look bad he gets it in his head as you said that it's going to look bad but then you have a guy that does not have a good track record and he draws the short straw I you know I had memories of that was how when I didn't my cousins and I if we had chores to do um there was ones we hated and whoever drew the short straw had to do the chore and I was always the Ledley who had to do the stupid chore. I mean, who knows how it would have gone forward if Potter or Wilcox got the gig. Or if Stevenson but, but, hadn't been killed, right? That's the other well, thing, right, too. Well, right, if you go, yeah. go all the way back. But June, uh, July 30th, 1864, the plan is ready to go. The mine is going to be detonated at 3.30 in the morning. The troops lined up right behind Poor Creek where the, uh, where that, the bluff is, and they waited for the explosion. The, the explosion was their signal to move forward and go. Okay. And so 3.30 comes, and they're all waiting, and nothing happens. Basically, Burnside's standing around like Clark Griswold <laughs> on Christmas vacation, waiting for waiting the for lights the, to yeah. come on, and nothing happens. And he's like, watch this. Nothing happens. Yeah. So Grant also, he's at Meade's headquarters at a place called the Shand House, and he's also waiting, and it doesn't go off. And then Grant tells, Grant's going to tell Meade, you know what? If this friggin' thing doesn't blow up, send them in anyway. Just send them in. Yeah. And Meade's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and finally, Colonel Pleasance, I mean, he's, I mean, just imagine, this is embarrassing for him. He spent weeks building this as a freaking go. He's going to take two of his, uh, two of his staff officers, a guy named James Doughty and Harry Reese. They're going to go into the mine and find out why it didn't blow up. Now, the thing that's interesting about this, this thing could have blown up at any second. Yeah. And they went in. They went inside dragging their brass balls as they went. <laughs> they go inside the mine. They find that the fuse had burnt out. So they all look around. They go, hey, give me some matches. And they go, you didn't bring them, did you? No. They forgot the matches. They had to go back out again and get matches and bring them back. And finally, they relit the fuse, and they ran like hell to get out of there. So at 4.44 in the morning, boom, it explodes. To this date, it's still one of the largest explosions ever on U.S. soil. And it blows the hell up, and, yeah. and it goes. It's as advertised. Yeah, it wakes Beauregard. Kill- it wakes Beauregard up, and um, the conf- there's one account from a Union officer that said it was a magnificent spectacle. And as the mass of earth went up in the air, carrying with it men, guns, uh, carriages, timbers, and spread out like an immense cloud as it reached its el- altitude. So close were the Union lines that the mass appeared as if it would descend immediately upon the troops waiting to make the charge. Yeah. This caused them to break and scatter to the rear and about 10 minutes were consumed in reforming for the attack. And this 10 minutes 
is so important when you're studying the crater? I mean, it goes up. It kills 278 Confederates. It blows them up. Yeah. The officers, they're literally, um, they're standing there watching, like you just said. It, the debris is going 200 feet up in the air. Body parts are raining down. Dare I say it's literally raining men. It is. Okay. And when the dust settles, the crater, it's there's going to be a crater left. It's 170 feet long, 60 feet wide, and 30 feet deep. And like you said, it's so loud, the Confederates north of the James River, they can hear it. Yeah. That's how loud this thing is. So the mine goes, it explodes, and it's time for Ledley's men to make their assaults. And Ledley was right there with them, fighting with them right in front. No, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. <laughs> Ledley is hiding in a bomb proof near Poor Creek, literally getting banged up on rum. With and Ferrero. With Edward Ferrero. And he's going to say that he was too sick to be there. Maybe he had a rag over his head the next but We don't know. But needless to say, he literally was drinking rum with Ferrero. And mm-hmm. He was hammered. That That's that's the word. It was a call me maybe re- situation? It was. But he also, he had the reputation of it. So unlike some of these other, these, this yeah, guy where was it's drunk like, stories. Yeah, like Hooker, for instance, at Chancellorsville, Hooker was drunk. No, he was concussed. You know, it's not, yeah. this is a legit, he was drunk. He was. But even with, even, you know, without the men, you know, that first wave of Union troops troops is going to get there within about five minutes of the explosion. And when they got there, per Ledley's orders, mm-hmm. what do they do? They just stop. As a matter of fact, many of the Union men actually stopped to assist the injured Rebs. And they think about it for a second. They had never seen, no one had ever seen this before. No, there was they, men buried. There was one account from a Confederate soldier. There's men buried with some only their legs and feet protruding from the earth. I mean, they had they were just like watching fireworks. They they yeah. were just in awe of the spectacle they saw, where this gigantic explosion starts falling from the sky, body parts everywhere, this yeah. big hole yeah. in the ground, probably still crackling, and they just they just they just stop. But but Ledley had the told them the orders to just stand there, and they stood around. Now Meade, seeing this transpire, he's going to order Burnside to send in more men. So he's going to send in now the, the divisions of Robert Potter and Orlando Wilcox. And these are those two com- these two competent division yeah. guys that, that Burnside had originally bypassed. Now, this large influx of guys all rushing to this area, it's going to create a natural bottleneck around the yeah. crater. And really none were able to get past it and none were able to progress towards Wells Hill, that high ground that was that primary focus of this attack. Throw in the fact also that Porter, Potter nor Wilcox were up front. They stayed in the back. Yeah. They never they didn't go either. So, you know, as a matter of fact, none of the commanders were you mentioned Ferrero, he's drinking too. Yeah. None of the division commanders were up front during this. They all stayed in the back. So without their commanders, what's gonna happen now? Ferrero's guys get called in. These are those US, USCT yep. guys. They're gonna be the fourth and final division to enter the battle of the crater. And mentioned before, this is Josh Siegfried and Henry Goddard Thomas, and they're ordered and they're, they're going to come now. And while you know, while this Union bottleneck is taking place and there's all this confusion after the explosion, the rebels are going to use this time to their benefit, mm-hmm. and they're going to protect their flanks near that crater, you know, where that breach initially had occurred. With every single passing moment, that opportunity for the Union to get to Wells Hill. And take that high ground was disappearing. Yeah, that's why the time is so important in this. So the whole thing was quickly turning into a wasted opportunity because of bad leadership and bad communication, like so many other of these battles we've talked about. Now, Lee and his Confederates, 
you know, they had this set up this golden opportunity to counterattack. And they had wisely, like we said before, set up artillery batteries behind Elliott's salience, right? This is Haskell guys, the branch battery and Nelson battery. And they did so strategically a way to hit anybody that came through. And Lee did have William Mahone's division at the ready, like we mentioned mm-hmm. before. So Lee is going to go to the bullpen here. Now, this is where Lee is going to be Lee. He is going to completely bypass chain of command. Corps commander AP Hill doesn't even talk to him, doesn't talk to Richard Anderson. He goes, gives the orders directly to Mahone, kind of the way he did with, with McClaws yeah. at Gettysburg. Mm. And he's going to, Lee's going to go right specifically to Mahone and tell him, to give him orders, take your brigades and attack that ground and regain that ground that we lost in this crater. Just friggin' do it. Go. Yeah. Mahone had three brigades. The first was his old brigade, his Virginians, under the command of David Weisiger. The second was under a command of John C.C. C. Sanders, Alabamans. And the third was Ambrose Wright's old uh, George mm-hmm. Brigade, which is now commanded by Matthew Hall. Now, Mahone first moves Hall's Georgians and Weisiger's Virginians uh, on a two-mile fun run through the woods to get down this Jerusalem plank road, um, which is going to be just west of the crater, and it's going to be hidden by a ravine. Yeah. And topography is important. There's two ravines that are important here. The Virginians were now led by – were in the lead, followed by um, followed by Hall's Georgians. And they were in position now on that second ravine, just 300 yards away from the crater. And the Union guys don't know they're there, but they are they, – the way the topography is hidden is set up. They're properly hidden in a perfect, perfect spot. Um, some of the men talked about seeing some of the injured Confederates coming back. Um, they were talking about it. Uh, but Mahone's orders were basically loud and clear what he knew he had yeah. to do. They knew they had to save the rebels' ass here. They knew they had less men, and they knew they had to stop the reunion from moving forward. They knew Wells Hill was there. They knew they had to keep them from there. Now, Mahone, the stories of him running up and down the line, giving these deep and passionate speeches that Herb Brooks would have been impressed by, yeah, he's just an, firing up his guys. He's an interesting figure, too. He's known for, like, uh, profanity quite a bit um in the town he grew up in um he had a reputation for gambling and a prolific use of tobacco and profanity another interesting um i don't know if i want to say fact about him i guess it is is that it is his soldiers who accidentally wound longstreet in the battle of the wilderness but i see why lee has gone to him because he is this like he's a hard fighter um and He's also just he's a like he's a pro secessionist. He's a fire eater. Um, he's been in a lot of battles. Uh, personal life. He and his wife have thirteen children. Unfortunately, only three survive to adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, he only stands about five six tall, and he weighs about a hundred pounds. And so he's not a very big guy. His soldiers said of him he was every inch a soldier, though there were not many inches of him. But he's well respected by his men. Um, and as you said, he's running around giving this impassioned speech, probably swearing quite a bit during it. But he is the one I think Lee's chosen him for a reason. And it's because he's this hard fighting soldier and Lee needs mm-hmm. a hard fighting soldier in this situation. One guy who's happy to see them is going to be uh, is going to be Major John Haskell, the mm-hmm. artillery guy. He's he's has those two artillery uh, battalions under Frank Huger. And he talked about how happy he was to see the, the, art, the infantry supporting them. Mahone's men weren't stupid, though. They knew that um, 
that they that Lee had his pants caught down that pulled down yeah. here, and they were again they were severely outnumbered, and it was up to them to hold back the Union line. One of those injured Rebs who was stumbling back from the um, from the crater, he yelled as he went by, "Boys, you have hot work ahead." That's what he told them, yeah. and. It's right about this time I mentioned before. Ferrero's guys are going in. It's right around this time that word begins to trickle through the Confederate lines that the Union troops in their front are black. And it's going to add kind of a, a sad level of motivation yes. here, which is really going to get out of control. Yeah. And the men, the men got more and more and more excited when they heard about this. One rebel soldier wrote about when they found out of the there was black troops to be fighting. I never felt more like fighting in my life. Our comrades have been slaughtered in the most inhumane and brutal manner, and black slaves were trampling over their mangled and bleeding forms. Revenge fired every heart with a Herculean task of blood. Yeah. Now, there are going to be ultimately two rebel counterattacks at the Battle of the Crater, okay? And we'll talk more about some of these stories but with these USCT yeah. guys. But but the first attack is going to be led by 800 men in Weissacher and Hall's regiments who are hiding in that second ravine I mentioned just 300 yards away from the crater. Nine o'clock in the morning, Mahone uh, is going to order this first counterattack on this Union position. Now, when they charged, um, they were able to gain a little bit of the, of the area, yeah. pretty much the just north of the, of the crater. They, they were able to stable that, but they weren't able to hit the crater themselves. The attack became completely disorganized. It was in piecemeal. The Virginias attacked first and the Georgias did. Like it, it, The whole thing fell apart. So by 11 o'clock in the morning, the battlefield's quiet again. And the feds still have the crater. But Mahone's guys, they have ground north of it. Mahone knows he needs more men because he, he just knows. Yeah. His guys are pinned down. So he's going to recall his final brigade of Alabans, Alabamians. This is 650 men under Colonel John C. Sanders. Now, he commanded the great Cadmus Wilcox's yeah. brigade, okay? And needless to say, Mary, Colonel Sanders was not a chicken, <laughs> okay? We'll leave it at that. Just before Sanders ordered this attack, he noticed that General Lee and Beauregard, they were on the field, and they were nearby at the home of a family called the Gee family. Yeah. And they're watching the attack. There's something like a popcorn going, but they're sitting there watching. Sanders is going to point point out Lee to his Alabamans and is going to say, men, we need you to make this attack and capture the position. If we fail, General Lee has promised to come out personally and lead us on the second attempt. Will you fail? And of course, no, 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 we're not going to fail. The men knew that there's no way that the great Robert E. Lee could risk his life and lead this attack. So they knew it was a brilliant speech by Sanders. He knew that they had they could not fail here because the, the prospect of Lee leading it and probably getting killed yeah. was um was a speech to these Alabamas that Nick Saban probably would have been, <laughs> would have been proud of. That's how much he, he really would have been. So he's joined he's joined by the remnants of Weissacker and Hall's men. Saunders is going to lead a total of about eleven hundred guys here to make to prepare for the second assault, the second counterattack at the Battle of the Crater. This is going to be around 2 p.m. This is going to start now. The second assault is going to begin. Sanders' men are going to go in, and they're going to charge that crater. And when they get there, it's going to lead to probably the 
ugliest hand-to-hand fighting in the yeah. entire Civil War. Now, we've used that phrase quite a bit. We've talked about Spotsylvania. We've talked about all these different battles. Mm-hmm. This is 45 minutes of pure rage driven by racial hate that was never seen in, in any other battle before that took place at this at this crater. Yeah. And this rebel, again, this rebel fuel was, was this hate was fueled by revenge aimed directly at these these USCT troops in this crater. Now, yeah. the thing about it was, you know, many of these black soldiers, they were massacred when they tried to surrender and they were shot down. Mm-hmm. It's the worst racial massacre in the entire Civil War battlefield by, yeah. by far. And some of them are saying, remember Fort Pillow. Um, right. And that had just happened on April 12th, 1864. So it's fresh in their minds. Um, one Confederate um, soldier wrote, that seeing the African-Americans fighting said it had the same effect upon our men that a red flag had upon a mad bull. So this is very racially fueled for them. They are not happy to see these African-Americans in arms. And, you know, I read an article that said this is because of the, the memory of slave rebellions. And there's there, just, there was a lot of that. It, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on in this battle that is not just, uh, you know, fighting uh, military stuff. It's a lot of... Uh, just the the time, the Civil War, and what's happening with it, and how much race is involved in it as mm-hmm. well. I mean, this battle was like ringing a dinner uh, was like ringing a dinner bell. I mean, you had remnants of Elliott's divisions. Some John Ransom's North Carolina's yeah. jumping pig piles on this. They were yelling, "Spare the white men, kill the N words!" As they yep. were fighting, um, some Major Matthew Love of the Twenty Fifth North Carolina, one of, one of those guys in Ransom's brigade, he's going to write. Such slaughter I have never witnessed on a battlefield anywhere. Their men were principally Negroes, and we shot them down until we got near enough to run them through with the bayonet. Major Haskell, the artillery guy we talked about, he was happy to see Mahone's men, like I said before. He wrote, our men were always made wild by having Negroes sent against them. Nothing in the war could have exceeded the horrors that followed. No quarter was given, and for what seemed like a long time, fearful butchery was carried on. Some of the officers told them to stop killing, but the men kept doing it. Yeah, there was, I think even Mahone stepped in and said, we need to stop this. Um, One soldier from the 48th Georgia, he wrote, our men killed them with the bayonets and the butts of their guns and every other way until they were lying eight or 10 deep on top of one another and the blood almost a quarter deep. Because the Union, some of the white Union soldiers... They were being butchered too because they were they were basically with the blacks. They actually turned on the blacks who were shooting down their own men at this point yeah. because they believed they were being targeted because they were associating with these black soldiers. One Union soldier, he wrote, I was not about to be taken prisoner amongst them N-words and white Federals joined in killing the black soldiers. So it turned into an overall race attack with you had, you had northern soldiers. And you, know, you don't hear that reported a lot. That, yeah. But you had white white Union troops killing the black Union troops in the crater because they felt yeah. that if they didn't, um, they were going to be they were going to be taken care of yeah. as well. It's very it's uh, a very dark part of the battle, and like I said, it goes back to just kind of, you know, what has been brewing in the U- U.S. for many many years leading up to the Civil War. Uh, like E.P. Alexander said, the sympathy of the North for John Brown's memory was taken for a proof of a desire that our slaves should rise in a servile insurrection and massacre throughout the South, and the enlistment of Negro troops was regarded as an advertisement of that desire and encouragement of the idea of that to the Negro. And that is what E.P. Alexander wrote about it. So again, it goes back to this idea of 
you know, a rebellion, the rise up of the slaves, which had happened a few times in the South. And that's why Southerners are that, you know, this way. This fear, this white officer, this white officer and soldier fear was was, was legit, though. There was a Virginia named Thomas Smith. He wrote, wrote he was a Southerner, obviously, Virginia. He wrote, white officers were vandals for bringing our own slaves against us. Surely there will be a day of retribution in justice, justice for such vandalism. So that so this is how they they knew that they were being targeted as well. These stories go on and on. Yeah. Another North Carolinian in Ransom's brigade, he said about the severity of this killing. It was understood amongst us that we take no Negro prisoners. It is death anyway if we hold uh, hold of them. We have no quarters for the Negro. Jefferson Davis's policy was to offer no quarters, and so men like Captain Pegram said of these killings, it's just a matter of policy. We're just doing our job. Yeah, they would be take the the African Americans were thinking they were being taken prisoner and they were taken to the back and shot. And apparently a lot of casualties occurred that way too. It is a very dark, sad part of this battle. Um and it doesn't get talked about a lot with it. You know, it's just all the military stuff, just how horrific yeah. it was. But this is a huge part of the Civil War. Right. Especially in eighteen sixty four. But just so, just to, to be fair here, not every single one of these Confederates was no. wild. Kill. Exactly. I mean, Mahone yeah. Mahone is one of the ones that steps in and says, like, "Oh my God, we need to stop this. They're not all this way." No, no. Private Noble Brooks, you yeah. mentioned the 48th Georgians um, in, in Hall's Brigade. He writes, "Oh, the depravity of the human heart that would cause men to cry out, no quarters in battle. It was heart sickening." So, um, but most took pride in describing that their adherence to this Confederate policy of no quarters. That they, they read most of the articles, it was soldiers. This is what I did. This is what we were told to do. Some black soldiers were at, were allowed to surrender along with some white soldiers. They were taken into the city of, of uh, Petersburg and humiliated by marching up and down in front of those eighteen thousand citizens. That's thanks to uh, A.P. Hill. Right. And you know what he did? He, he put the blacks and the whites together yep. to show them what integration would look like. And this yep. is what we're fighting. So that this is this is, you know, this is what's going on with this. Back at the crater, it's a complete and utter rout. The Union dead bodies are piled up in some places, eight bodies deep yep. in this thing, right? David Holt, 16th Mississippi of the site, he wrote, the most horrible site that even old veterans had seen exceeding the carnage of Spotsylvania's bloody angle. So most of them, many of the guys said this is the worst they'd ever seen. Many of the bodies of the killed were mutilated, mostly the, mostly the black ones. They were spread throughout the crater everywhere. So by 3 p.m., the battle's basically over for the most part. The Rebs had regained almost all the ground they'd lost, and they had reinforced those trenches behind the crater now. Mm-hmm. So now they have the crater as, their, as a strong defense too. So they've, they've because of the crater and the, and the trenches behind them, they have a really strong defensive point now. After, you know, the, and this whole thing was a complete mess. After the battle, U.S. Grant called it one of the saddest affairs of the entire war. Yeah. And, and when, you, when you look at this, um, it's really, it's a hammer and nail type situation. The Union troops, when it was all said and done, had 3,800 casualties. Yeah. The Rebs took the Reds took about, the Reds took about 2,200, 2,300 as well. Yeah. But when you add the losses at deep bottom, Grant lost about 4,000 men here. Yeah. In this in this three or four day period. And this goes back to the time when the media is calling him Grant the Butcher. Yeah. You know, and you can see, I guess, you know, if you're reading that in the papers, like all these numbers are adding up. You know, and news, obviously, I mean this. It's not as many numbers, but 
similar things are happening to Sherman in the uh, the Western theater as well. He's yeah. he's losing a lot of men as well, but because of the proximity to the Eastern theater, to the newspapers in New York and D.C., word is getting out a lot quicker about how many men Grant is losing. But Ledley lost about 18% of his men. Ferrero's Black Division lost 31%, mm. mostly killed because they weren't allowed to surrender. Um, you know, it's funny, after the battle, Burnside is going to kind of ask the Rebs for a temporary truce to, to gather the dead and, and get the yeah. injured. And remember back, we did Cold Harbor. There was no such. If you, if you wanted to, if you wanted a truce, it'd be a formal truce. And you weren't too quick to sign up for one of those because it was admitting defeat. And so it went back and forth. Meade refused because he's Meade to yeah, make a formal request to leave um, because he didn't want to admit he lost that battle. Yeah. So naturally, this informal request was rejected by Lee, and and he's saying it had to be a formal truce. Now you mentioned the weather; it's a hundred plus degrees. Yeah. So Meade finally acquiesced and said, "Okay, fine, we'll do a formal retreat." And he writes it up. He gives it to Lee. Lee yeah. looks at it and goes, I can't accept this. Beauregard's in charge of that part of the field. Go yeah. find Beauregard and surrender to him. Which, you know, that, that's what he does. Yeah. So it finally gets it. So Beauregard gets it now. Now, he didn't, this, this is basically the end of the day on, on, on the, end, the end of the 31st of July, right? Yeah. It's, Beauregard gets it. And look, he reads and goes, okay. But it's kind of late in the day. So let's wait till tomorrow. And the men and so, don't have water, and it's right. hot and out. These guys are out there, and now it's August 1st. So finally, the injured and mostly dead on, on the 1st, they go out there to go get them. Yep. Now, um, these bodies have been lying 100 degrees in the sun for a while. The heat destroyed many of the dead bodies. And the men who went out to get them talked about having to use shovels to dig, to yep. carry them because the bodies are basically falling apart. They talked about they had to take breaks from digging with the shovel because maggots got so high in their arms they had to stop oh, and brush gosh. them off. Yeah. That's how that's how miserable this this whole thing yeah. was. They talk about the smell being completely intolerable. They just, they just couldn't deal with it. Um, and so it ends up being something that ended up being a really really ugly situation. And the fallback politically from this ended up being huge too. Yeah, there is so the Joint Committee Conduct of War gets together. Uh, they have to um, have kind of an inquest into this. And it's actually, I think Meade is one of the ones that says, yeah, we should do this. The person behind the inquest is none other than Winfield Scott Hancock. He is yeah. the one that writes up, you know, what happens. And if you want to know what he says, there's um, a really good book written by um, Andrew Humphreys, who was part of the Army of the Potomac. He wrote a book called The, v the Virginia Campaign of 1864-1865. Um, it is in Appendix K, and it has everything that Hancock said, like just what was brought down after this after this investigation into what happened. And basically, everybody was blamed. Ledley, Burnside, Ferrero. They're not following orders. Uh, Ledley specific and Ferrero were both called out for not being on the field. And yeah, the and, language and, towards Ledley is such that you can see the undertone is like Hancock knew he was getting banged up in that bomb proof that he and huh? Ferrero were in. But it is not a good look for the Union at all. Um, that this, no, and, they, and the other thing too, Burnside is gone after this. Yeah, too. Burnside gets dumped. Ledley gets bumped for the, uh, dumped for the most part. You know, Ledley's going to return to civil life. He's going to return to that career as an engineer. He's going to work for the Union Pacific Railroad. 
he's only going to live to age 50. He's going to die. Yeah, um, he dies quite in 1882. Young. And it's, you know, the one who was, you mentioned before, that was officially blamed, got the scarlet letter was Ambrose Burnside. Yeah. And for the, but in 1865 before he was exonerated from the battle of the crater in blame Ford fell on guess who George Meade. Yeah. He's the one who took it because they said that the way he tinkered with the, the um, divisions, the attack, the battle screwed the whole battle. up. So Meade ended up being the one who, who took a big hit for this. Yeah. Um, they, they decided that not that me not, his demand does not allow black troops to lead the lead the attack and changing those plans so late ultimately at that last minute is why it failed so so there you go that that's kind of what they said burnside you mentioned him you know he will be involved in rhode island in national politics before dying of a heart attack in 1881 so he's not gonna live too much longer either but it's a real bad luck for the union and because they couldn't break through and get to wells hill and split that army it's going to lead to that 10-month siege of petersburg that's just going to go and go and go and when you look at the first offensive it failed because of communication second offensive failed because of communication this one fell apart because of communication and you think about this you know we talk you know people talk about tactics and logistics and communications and orders but the Battle of the Crater, like so many of these other battles, has to – they really – you can't focus on the that, the logistics and the communications. You have to focus on what the big picture is with this, which yeah. is human pain and suffering and men dying because of bad orders and bad decisions by generals. And that's what people who study the, the crater need to come away with this, is that because of this whole fiasco of how it was – it ends up being one of the more disgusting and most vicious fights yeah. in the entire war. And because of that union incompetence, it led to this, this led to the siege that went on and on and on. And it's easy to look back with a 2020, you know, telescope yeah. and make decisions and all that. But you think about how if things were different, they could have got right through and maybe it would have been over sooner. But instead, it goes on. You have the siege, which ultimately leads to Pit, uh, Petersburg falling and it goes off to Appomattox. But it, when you look at some of these decisions, it just makes you shake your head. It just does. Yeah, it it's the crater is a horrific battle, and it's not just you know, um, it's it's a part of the Civil War, obviously. But too, it is this. It shows the racism that is happening, um, and it is on both sides, as we discussed with the New York City draft riots. It is happening in the North too. Not every Confederate here is you know gunning down the African Americans and targeting them. But it, it did happen here. Um, but just like, you know, in the New York City draft riots, you have Northerners, white Northerners going after African-Americans as well. So there is there is a lot of racism in the Civil War that is part of the story and needs to be talked about. And it needs to be told with the story of the Battle of the Crater. And two, this is horrific fighting, as you said. 1864 is horrific, horrific fighting. We've seen it in the episodes we've done recently about Pickett's Mills in the Western Theater. We've seen it with Spotsylvania with Cold Harbor. There was one Union officer that wrote that, you know, when the crest of the fort was swept with canister and grape shot from the batteries of the enemy, um, like they just opened on them with a heavy bombardment and they had perfect range of the crater and therefore almost every shell exploded in the midst of the dense mass of men, killing and wounding many of our brave soldiers at every explosion. Um, And not to mention the Confederate soldiers that are sleeping when this, when it explodes and they are just... Literally, there's one guy that is um, shot out of his bed, basically. He woke up midair, apparently, 
and there was one Confederate soldier that wrote about it. He said they found him um, and he was a second lieutenant. And he said that the fresh air eventually revived him and he was soon able to walk and talk. But he said he was very grateful that he was alive. And he said that he was asleep when the explosion happened and he awoke to find himself up in the air. And then a few seconds afterwards, he fell to the ground and he lost consciousness. So it's this horrific battle on both sides. But again, you know, there's the race aspect of this too with these, you know, USCT troops being involved and the one article I read written in 1938 specifically mentions that the, the African-American casualties at this battle are extremely high. They were. 31, 31% right there. Yeah. You can visit the crater today. It's still there for the most part. You can see the indentation. You can still see the, the entrance of the mine. You can see how it, uh, it, it weaves its way through. You can see the dips. After the battle, for the most part, it kind of was owned by private property. And they actually gave tours. You can go down mm-hmm. the mine shaft and you can go visit the tours. Um, it was all lit up. You could buy a ticket. There were stories that the um, the owners would which were selling um, human skulls, ashtrays, uh, that were found there. The you could buy in the gift shop, apparently. Maybe they took that Visa MasterCard, too. But eventually, um, the Park Service has it. But uh, you can still go there and you can see it. You can still see the explosion, where it went to. It's not, obviously, it's grown over. It's, it's a little bit different now. But it's quite a place to see. It really, it really, really is. And it's kind of a, um, it's, it's a fascinating place to check out, but at the same time, you, you see it and you realize how many people died there, both in the Confederates, the initial explosion, and then the battle, but also the, the Union guys, both black and white, who, um, who fought there. So yeah. I think it's a good place to drop this off it here, is. I think, if yep. you can leave it at this. But, but it's definitely one that's a very, very um, interesting battle, um, but it's, an, it's got a real ugly side. As sexy as blowing up stuff and running through, it's as cool as that sounds. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's a really dark era um, yeah. of, of, battle, of battle fighting. So, yeah, anyway, specifically to, oh, I was going to say, specifically, you know, obviously the African Americans involved in this battle, which, you know, as we also discussed with our New York City draft riots episode, just that that is happening too in the Civil War, and it's something that needs to be talked about. So next for us, uh, we need to sit down and talk about that. <laughs> Yeah, we'll think we got to figure something out. But but definitely more Battlefield episodes, definitely some book club announcements soon as well. And we've had a really, really busy summer, so we will be bringing our roundtable back again as well. Um, Just a reminder about our event in September with the Civil War Museum in Harrisburg. We are going to be doing an event with them as well. And um, so you can find information about that on our Facebook page. We're going to be there doing trivia. So it is a live in-person event. Yeah, can, uh, cannonballs and cocktails. It's gonna yeah. be, it's gonna be a great event. So come, hundred uh, percent of the proceeds from the National Silver Museum go go to them uh, to help that museum going. But it's gonna be a lot of fun. We're talking nighttime artillery demonstrations, yeah. Mary, which is gonna be great to see. Don't see that all that often. A lot of cool people are gonna be there. Come check it out. In trivia, we're gonna be doing like you just mentioned. We'll be giving away books courtesy of the Lincoln yes. Bookshop. Yeah. So um, that'll be a lot of fun as well. All right. So any final words from you, Fincheru, before we mm-hmm. head off into this Friday evening? Thanks as always for bringing it um, with the research as well as with the hosting. I think you should host more. Your introductions are yeah. way better than mine. And thank you for the birthday wishes as well. That's right. Well, happy birthday. One birthday gift you'll not be getting is a perma, you know, um, hosting job from me because thank yours you. are fun I don't, to listen to. Anyway. All right, guys. Everybody have a great weekend. Um, hopefully it cools off where you are. Summer's winding down, it feels like anyway. So off we go. So uh, guys, have a great, safe weekend. We look forward to talking to you soon. And uh, we'll see you on the other side. See you all later. Peace out. Bye.